As President Trump tweets about a pseudoscientist who believes in alien DNA and suggests he might seek to postpone the election, the country's governors are left to grapple on their own with the pressing issues of an out-of-control pandemic, racial protests, and spikes in violence in major cities. We'll talk to two of those governors on the front lines, Larry Hogan of Maryland, one of the few outspoken Republican critics of the president, and Democrat J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, who has quietly lobbied Joe Biden on who should be his vice presidential pick. You'll hear both of them on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent with Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, I was going to um, start out talking about some of uh, Trump's most recent tweets, the ones about the one about the doctor who uh, posted the online video on Monday uh, dismissing masks. Uh, This is a woman, Dr. Stella Emanuel, who apparently believes in uh, the existence of alien DNA and uh, gynecological problems caused by people dreaming about having sex with demons. But, you know, with Trump, uh, there's always something else that he does that trumps his previous outrageous tweet. And today we got one from him about the possibility of postponing the election, suggesting that the uh, 2020 election will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent in American history and uh, just raising the prospect that perhaps it should be postponed, something he actually does not have the power to do. You know, it's I guess classic Trump, outrageous, appalling, but not surprising. I mean, there's already been talk swirling around this White House that uh, maybe the election would have to be postponed. As you point out, the date is set by statute. It would take an act of Congress to change the date. And that is not something that anyone with any authority in the, in the House or the Senate have said that they would be willing to do. So it's a non-starter. But Trump knows that, but it's it's still it's corrosive and it undermines uh, faith in the system. And I think the strategy here, if Trump has a strategy, is to just throw this out there to get people talking, to distract people from other things and to get his base focused on this idea that uh, mail in ballots are going to lead to uh, massive fraud so that he can delegitimize the election, which at this point, looking at the poll numbers, is thinking he is going to lose and may lose massively. And one other thing I want to say, look, to some extent in this country, people in this country have kind of internalized uh, these Trump tweets. Maybe they don't have as much impact as they did at, at one point because they uh, there's so many of them and they're so outrageous um, and they don't always lead to any you know actual 
action of, of any sort. But the impact that it has around the world in terms of our reputation, we were once a beacon of democracy around the world, which we no longer are, and also the impact that it has on dictators and autocrats who, you know, Trump is aiding and abetting by talking openly about canceling elections. That's what dictators do. And that's what the United States stands up against. And so when when the commander in chief does that, you know, it undermines all of our credibility around the world. And, and I, th- I think it's just worth noting that. It is. And it is also worth noting that there are really serious problems that we are uh, confronted with on a daily basis that the governors we're going to talk to uh, have to deal with. But, you know, just it is worth noting on the covid front that things are getting uh, closer and closer to the White House. The the real toll of this we learned. We talked the other day about uh, Louis Gohmert, the uh, Texas Republican congressman, uh, Positive. We forgot to mention that Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, has tested positive. And uh, just if anybody has any doubt about the lethality of this disease, we learned today about Herman Cain, the former Republican presidential candidate who died from COVID. Yeah. And let's and let's remember that Herman Cain contracted the virus 10 days after the president's Oklahoma rally. He was there and he was not wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you have it. And that's why we're going to talk to both of our guests today about the need for mask mandates and uh, how important it is. So we've got two great guests. We don't get governors very much on Skullduggery. In fact, have we ever had any before? Today, well, yeah, um, we had yeah, we had the Michigan governor. Oh, that's true. Yes, yes, uh, Governor Whitmer of Michigan. So we're on a roll on the <laughs> on the gubernatorial <laughs> front. Larry Hogan and J.P. Pritzker. Let's uh, get right to them. We now have with us the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, also the author of the new book, Still Standing. Governor, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks very much. It's great to be with you guys. And I'm going to start out with a little point of personal privilege because um, I, uh, I don't know if you remember, Governor, but I first met you many, many years ago when I was a young uh, reporter for the Washington Star covering Prince George's County. Your father was the Prince George's County executive. You were on his staff. And, oh, um, I, trust me, I remember very well. <laughs> you were a tough investigative reporter and i was every day waiting for the newspaper to uh, come out to see what kind of a tough story you had put out so i mean i still have nightmares about those days all right little little how could i forget quick pop quiz do you remember who your dad's fiercest critic on the county council was at the time well i guess it had to be paris glendenning Exactly. Another who later went on to become governor as well. So I think you should put under the road signs in uh, in Upper Marlboro, Upper Marlboro breeding ground of governors. That's fun. (laughs) Well, you know, Paris Glendening and I are are pretty good friends these days. And he's been uh, you know, I've reached out to him and he's he was at uh, at my inaugural and he's been to all of my state of the states. And 
he's been to the house a bunch, and I've gotten a lot of good advice from him. So, uh, well, so things come back around. You know, we were kind of on opposite teams, and 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 not always in agreement on all the issues. But he's uh, he's a nice uh, nice guy, and 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 a former governor, and and he was also a former chair of the uh, National Governors Association, which I'm chairing now. So we, we we've had a lot of good conversations, and he's given me some advice. And we now know, Governor, that if you do end up uh, running for president at some point, you've been through the Isakoff test. <laughs> well, I figure if I can make it through Isakoff, I, I mean, there's almost nothing, you know, you, you, if you made it through that, you can pretty much go through uh, the gauntlet. All right. Well, we uh, see, you still got to we'll, make it through this interview. So. That's right. We'll see about that. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if I can find this, baby. Uh, all right. All right. I want to I start out. I know you don't like to constantly have to respond to things the president has said or tweeted but well, today... i don't like to be responsible for anything he says i i mean i like to take ownership of things i say but right <laughs> but there is a there was a pretty provocative tweet today that's getting a lot of attention i'll just read it to you I want to get your reaction with universal mail-in voting this is the president tweeting 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote? Question mark. Wow. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm. I'm. I never cease to be amazed at uh, some of the uh, things that the president tweets, but that one, even that one, took me by surprise. It's. Uh, it's it's an outrageous thing to say, and obviously uh, not not something that uh, anybody should take seriously. I don't know why the president goes about uh, saying and doing some of the things he does, but that that was just uh, really uncalled for. Well, uh, when you say that people shouldn't take it seriously, you mean because he doesn't have the authority to actually delay the election. But shouldn't people take seriously when the president of the United States says something like that in terms of uh, you know the effect that it has on confidence in our system? Yeah, well, no, I didn't mean to, to say that uh, when the president tweets something, it doesn't have any meaning. I um, mean, you know, I've long uh, been critical and, uh, of the president's uh, sometimes uh, you know, tweets that are not, uh, you know, not productive at all and sometimes very harmful to the discussion. I've talked about that throughout this coronavirus pandemic and uh, that, that the tweeting has been counterproductive and, and the off message and, and harmful to the things that the rest of the whole coronavirus team and his administration was trying to convey and that the governors are trying to do. I, I said when the president was running for uh, office and, and when he was first uh, became president that, uh, that people would often ask, do you have any advice for the president? And I said, stop tweeting. <laughs> I mean, so, but no, I, 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 first of all, I don't think it's true. We, you know, we've been doing in Maryland, we've had uh, been able to vote by mail with absentee ballots for any reason whatsoever for like 20 years, and it's worked very effectively. We have no problems. We're now one of 14 states in the country who are uh, either sending out uh, applications and or ballots to every single voter in the state. And and I just don't see it as a problem. I mean, obviously, we want to be careful and make sure that we go about things in a way that's not going to allow for any fraud. But to, to say that we're going to postpone the election because of rampant fraud that we don't we haven't seen it just it just doesn't make sense. But the but the real the other issue is that he he can't postpone the election, doesn't have the power to do that, and it's just kind of, that's that's why it's an outrageous statement. 
So you have gotten a lot of attention and applause for your handling of the coronavirus uh, in the state of Maryland. And I noted that uh, just yesterday uh, you expanded the state's mandate for wearing masks to all people over five uh, years old uh, while they are either indoors in public spaces or outdoors when social distancing is not possible. How are you going to enforce that? And also tell us where you are in Maryland right now, because, you know, for all the progress you've made, you still had in Maryland 761 new cases yesterday and 20 deaths. Yeah, well, first of all, this uh, this virus is obviously by no means behind us. But I think we you know, we took some of the earliest and most aggressive actions in the country. And the peak for us was really back in in, in mid-April, and we've been steadily going down since then on our positivity rate, which is the thing that we're watching carefully. And until just the past uh, week or so, we were down on our hospitalizations. We've seen a slight uptick in the uh, total number of positive cases, but that's primarily due to the fact that we're we're doing about 400% more uh, test than we were like a month ago. So you know, we're, the good news is we're we're out there testing many more people and we're finding the cases where they are and contact tracing and doing a good job trying to stamp out the virus. We're well below the positivity rate that the goal that's set by the World Health Organization and the CDC of 5%. So we're, uh, you know, we dropped again today. We dropped uh, to a three, I think, 3.7% on the daily. We're at 4.4%, I think, on our seven-day average, all of which are really good compared to most of the other states. You know, the federal government put out a, uh, a, a hot zone list of 21 states across the country that they felt needed to take some dramatic actions of shutting, reshutting their parts of their economy and and uh, putting uh, more restrictive uh, limitations, uh, 10-person gathering. We're not on that list of 21 states or anywhere near on that list of states. But we're, we're not complacent, and we're, we're certainly uh, continuing to be very vigilant, which is why we took the action we did yesterday. I was one of the first in the country to uh, do a mask order. We were the, you know, I declared a state of emergency in our state the very first day we had our first case. Governor DeWine in Ohio and I were the first ones to close schools, and I've done 40-some executive orders. As a result, we have gotten you know, the virus under control from a point of you know, 30-some percent positivity back in April down to four. And, but sadly, uh, you know, it's, it's flaring up all across the country, and the virus doesn't well, recognize state borders. And it's, well, uh, we're not immune, and there's, there's no guarantee that we're not going to have a spike back up. And so masks, uh, more than anything else, can keep people safe and, and, and stop the spread. And I'd like to try to keep you know people working as best we can if we can do it in a safe way, keep some of our, our businesses open and get people uh, being able to get back to their normal lives if they can. Masking is the easiest thing to do as opposed to shutting everything down. And it's worked well for us, but we had it in you know restaurants and, and uh, retail locations and grocery stores and pharmacies. We just expanded it to more places because our contact tracing found that much of the spread was not taking place in those things, uh, those places. It was taking place in outdoor gatherings with people crowding together without masks and in, um, in office environments and things like that. So 
Governor, let me just follow up on on that because you know you you have flirted with uh, the idea of running for president, something that you write about in Still Standing. But we'll, we'll be talking about that. So you have to think of what you would do if you were in the Oval Office. And I guess the question that it sounds like Mike was just about to ask, but I will, is if you were president, would you issue a national mask order? Do you think that that's something that President Trump ought to do? It seems like a pretty simple thing to do, and I think it's something that his entire coronavirus task force, I think, has been kind of uh, talking about, and, and I think they would all advise him in that direction. It's something that, obviously, uh, the CDC and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and the, you know the secretary of HHS and everybody else says almost every day, and the, the Surgeon General and the president, look, uh, the good news is a week or so ago, he started to change his tune in that direction where... He now is saying that wearing a mask is patriotic, and he was you know, seen wearing a mask in multiple locations, tweeted out a picture of himself in a mask. So that's a step in the right direction, but not, you know, from the beginning, I said, you know, that we got off on the wrong foot. The president wasn't taking this virus seriously enough, and they made it very clear that they wanted the governors to step up and take this on uh, themselves, and that's what we have done for the past five months or so. Listening to your answer, it sounds like you're saying, you know, the answer is yes, there ought to be a national mask order, right? I think it would be very helpful. I don't see it happening. So it's, you know, kind of a hypothetical. Yeah, I, there's no question that this would have, if we had done this back, you know, in in March, uh, we probably wouldn't have the spread that we have. We wouldn't have 150,000 right. deaths. And right. but but and now I don't I don't think it's going to happen. But there's certainly but now it, there are 30 states across America who have ta- taken these actions, and I think you'll you'll see uh, probably the rest of them. And and some of them, very red states, these southern states who were very much opposed to it, have now taken those actions out of necessity of these these huge spiking numbers that they have. But we still have governors who are resisting. And you're, uh, you know, uh, are you still president of the National Governors Association at this point? Well, uh, they call uh, me the chairman, and I'm just, chairman, I'm a okay. short timer. I'm soon about to turn over the reins to my vice chair, Governor Cuomo, but uh, they're still going to get a little more work okay. out of me. Well, I was going to say, look, you, uh, as you write in the book, you are very close to uh, Vice President Pence, and uh, he helped you out when you first were running for governor, and he was... Um, the Republican Governors Association. Have you talked to Vice President Pence about the need to do what you said should be done, which is a national mask order? Well, I'm not sure if we've had a uh, personal conversation about that particular issue. I can tell you that my opinion, probably one of the best things, best decisions the president uh, has made on this was putting Vice President Pence in charge of the coronavirus task force. He's he is taking it very seriously. They have a pretty good team around them with uh, Fauci and Burks and you know uh, you know Dr. Hahn at FDA and you know they're really serious. We have these meetings every single week uh, with all the governors that Pence uh, leads with much of the cabinet, and we have really productive discussions. They, they talk about the science. They go over the numbers and the data. And then the president will tweet something or say something at a press conference an hour or two later. That's completely opposite of where, you know, on a totally different page than the rest of his administration. So, I, you know, I, I still continue to think that, the, you know, the, the vice president is doing a good job leading the task force. And I think there's some good folks on there trying their best. But, you know, the guy, the guy in charge uh, just doesn't seem to be on board with the rest of his team. Have you uh, had an opportunity to talk to President Trump uh, anytime recently? 
I haven't had uh, a chance to talk to him personally recently. I mean, he had been on a few of the calls. He hasn't been on them in a few weeks. Uh, but I, you know, I was leading the call on behalf of the governors every week, and he was on about 20 of these calls. I think we've done 46 calls over the past four months or so uh, that I've led for the governors. Many of them had the president and or vice president on them. So I got to speak to him directly, but along with all my colleagues on these uh, video conferences, and I usually let off on behalf of the governors, but I, I haven't uh, haven't seen the president or talked to him directly. I'm, most of my conversations are with the vice president and or cabinet members. I gather you're a little disappointed that he hasn't given you a uh, a mocking nickname. Well, I'm not sure I'm, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I mean, I'm more than happy to stay off of the radar screen. I mean, it's a, it is a little unusual that uh, he did take a few shots at me in a press conference or two, but, uh, but I'm, I'm glad I didn't get uh, tweeted a, a nickname. I mean, uh, it seemed, I seem to be one of the few that he hasn't gone after that way. Didn't you, uh, didn't you have some ideas about what he might call you? Well, I was, I was joking about, you know, I was surprised that I didn't get tweeted about. And I said, uh, you know, maybe he, he might come up with uh, something like, you know, Fat Larry, because I've put on a few pounds, so, yeah, or Cancer Boy. You know, I went through this battle with cancer when I first became governor. So I'm sure, you know, something really nice and friendly like he normally does. So, Governor, as Danny mentioned before, he said you had flirted with running for president. You'd done more than that. You, you were seriously considering it this time. And then you decided that, you know, you weren't there was no plausible way for you to become the Republican nominee. But here we are at this point in time now. The president's poll numbers are plummeting. We're in the middle of a national emergency with covid have you thought of reconsidering your decision not to seek the nomination this year? Well, no. Well, first of all, I didn't. Uh, I didn't really even flirt with it or give it serious consideration. And, and I just touched on that in the book. I, after I was reelected, kind of in a in a landslide in one of the bluest states in 2018, in a blue year with a blue wave, people started saying, "How how did that happen? You know, we'd lost governors, we lost the House of Representatives, we lost legislative bodies, and." It started to get a little attention around the time I inaugural and George, uh, you know, Jeb Bush, you know, said we uh, came and did a speech and said some things, and a number of people started saying maybe I should consider it. I was I didn't pursue it in any way, but there was some talk. I just didn't totally dismiss it, and you know, may, maybe had a few people talking to me about it, but I didn't pursue it in any way. And I'm not doing that now. I mean, I said it's far too early uh, to talk about what happens and in 2024. But no, you, I mean, still in 2020, there's no, no way to get involved in a, in a race. I think there are an awful lot of people in America today that are not, you know, that, that are not happy really with the choices in either party. They're not, they're not thrilled with uh, president Trump. They're not thrilled with Joe Biden. And there might be a, a, a you know, a, maybe wishing there were someone else to choose from, but there's no, no possible way of uh, making it through a, the personal primary process. Is, it's way too late, but uh, to make it through the Republican well, primary, when, when the Trump, he still has a pretty solid lock on the on the base of the Republican Party. Yeah, but look at the polls where the president's approval ratings are, you know, barely forty percent at this point. I mean, is there is there any path you see that he could possibly win re-election at this point? I would say that it's very, very difficult, and uh, and this is what people were talking to me about, and what I was actually saying back much earlier on saying I thought that uh, the president was was going to weaken that he was going to have a hard time in a general election and the people were saying 
Uh, yeah, he, he had a lock on the primary, but he was going to have a difficult time in, in the general election, and that might hurt down-ballot races, and that, uh, you know, we were shrinking the tent rather than growing the tent, that he was doubling down on appealing to the base, but he wasn't reaching out to any other possible swing voters or independents or discerning Democrats and alienating suburban women and you know, things like that. So I, I still feel that way, and it seems to be happening. But you can't count anything out. I mean, you know, I, I know that, you know, 90 days is a life time in politics. This time in 2014, all the pundits and experts and pollsters said I was down by 18 points in the blue state with no money, and I ended up uh, winning the biggest surprise upset in America. So, I mean, things can change and polls can be wrong, and we have no idea what it's going to look like, you know, three months from now, but there's no question that if the election was held today, that uh, Trump would not be reelected and that uh, Republicans would take a beating all across the country. Well, what you've said, what you've said, Governor, is that you wouldn't really have a chance if Trump continues to have a hold on the Republican Party that, you know, that, that he's had all of this all of this time. And that hold, it could still be the party of Trump, even if he's defeated. But are, what are you seeing in the data that suggests to you that uh, Republicans may be reverting back in some ways to where the party was before? Are you seeing that? Well, I, I just believe that you know, I, it's not really data driven other than, I mean, there are there are polls that show the New York Times did a poll, a group called More in Common did a poll that said 76 percent of the people in America are just completely frustrated with the, the politics today. And they're frustrated with the Republicans and Democrats. And they, so I, there are a lot of people that just don't like the divisive uh, politics today. And I think they're looking for something different. I think after November, regardless of what happens, the Republican Party, whether Trump is reelected or not, is going to take a hard look at where they go over the next four years after Trump, what happens. We could return back to uh, the more traditional Republican Party or do we keep heading in the direction we're heading. I also think the Democratic Party, uh, depending on their results, are, they're going to take a hard look at where they are and have they moved too far to the left? Are they leaving some people behind that are, that are more moderate or in the middle? You know, I think both parties are going to reexamine their politics and uh, if they're both moving you know, maybe towards the extremes. And there, there seem to be, seems to be a huge lane down the middle for an awful lot of people that don't identify with the far left or the far right. In your book, you uh, write about how you didn't vote for President Trump last time. You wrote in your dad. What are you going to do this time? Well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, there, there's certainly a possibility that I might write somebody in. I, you know, the guy who, uh, the, guy, the other guy who really had a big influence on me was Ronald Reagan. And, you know, maybe I'll think about writing him in. Uh, you know, I... Uh, well, well, he's... He's passed, so. Well, you know, so is my dad, but I mean, there's no, no rule about writing in someone who's passed. I know that, uh, you know, last time uh, John, uh, uh, we, we, I know we got, I know that Kasich wrote in John McCain, and I know that all the Bushes that wrote in someone else. And, but, you know, it, I don't know, but we'll see. But, my, look, I, I really believe that the, the uh, Republican Party should return to uh, a bigger tent that's more welcoming. I think we ought to be working more towards reaching across the aisle to get things done more bipartisan common sense solutions. And I just think back and maybe maybe it's dating myself, making me too old. But I remember back to Reagan, you know, working with Tip O'Neill and uh, getting things done with the Democratic Congress. And and that's the kind of politics that I'd love to see us try to get back to. But your uh, impulse to reach across the aisle would not lead you to vote for Joe Biden. Is that is that is there any possibility of that? 
I don't, I don't see it happening. I mean, um, you know, I, I, again, I, I'm not that thrilled with the candidates on either side. Last time it didn't, uh, I didn't vote for either of the two major candidates, so along with a lot of my fellow uh, Republicans didn't either. You know, you, you talk a lot about the president's uh, divisive rhetoric. And, you know, there was another tweet yesterday that was actually uh, pretty eyebrow raising. And I want to read it to you because it goes directly to that issue that you've that you've talked about this is trump i am happy to inform all of the people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low income housing built in your neighborhood your housing prices will go up based on the market and crime will go down i have rescinded the obama biden affh rule enjoy is that an appeal to white voters who fear that African-Americans might be living, uh, moving into their neighborhoods? And if so, what do you, what's your reaction? Well, yeah, again, I, look, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure I'm qualified to opine on what uh, goes on inside the head of, of Donald Trump or how he decides what crazy things to tweet uh, in the middle of the night. I didn't see the tweet. I don't, I don't know what his motivation was, but it certainly is probably not something that he should have tweeted or that, I would have tweeted and, you know, I just, uh, again, I I don't feel like commenting on every kind of stupid tweet that he does. But, but is that a racist tweet? Is that a racist sentiment? It certainly sounded like why. Yeah. It, it, It sounded, it sounds like that to you. Sure. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about your book, because there's actually a lot of um, fun anecdotes uh, in it. I really uh, wanted it to be, it's not a deep political, uh, you know, I'm not talking about a bunch of position. I really wanted it to be kind of a, a fun, uh, you know, life story. And, so, you know, I, I think I learned some valuable lessons and I, I, want, I, I was hoping people might enjoy it. I had totally forgot about 1992. You ran against Steny Hoyer, another guy still very much with us. Uh, Still still standing, as it were. (laughs) Still standing, too. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Quite an exchange you had with him culminating with, this is a podcast, we can say everything. Uh, uh, He gets so exasperated with you. He leans over, hisses, according to your book. You're such a fucking liar, Hogan. (laughs) (laughs) Well... You know, he says he doesn't recall exactly using that language, but, <laughs> but I, re- I recall it. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know I, I was I was speaking pretty truthfully, but he got a little angry. Um, you know, it was funny. It was like, you know, we had a really it was crazy. It was a three and a half to one Democrat to Republican district. I had no money whatsoever. I was a 36 year old guy who never held office. Then he was a powerful leader of Congress at the time, and he was the chairman of the Democratic Caucus. He, he, he uh, I guess, was the number four guy in the, in the leadership and the majority of Congress. And uh, and I, I can't give him a really good run for his money. I beat him in four out of five counties. And it was in a presidential year with a huge turnout. And it turns out it was the largest, uh, it was the largest uh, turnout, Democratic turnout, largest black turnout in history, coming out to vote for Bill Clinton and against uh, George Bush. And so in Prince George's County, right, right outside of Washington, a majority minority county is where Hoyer was able to survive. But uh, that, that debate took place a Thursday before the Tuesday election, and he, he had polls showing me tied. It was, he was panicked because I didn't even run a single commercial, didn't have any money. And uh, but we had given him a pretty good run. And, we're, we, we're, you know, we're now we get to work with each other as, the, you know, he in his current position, me as governor. And we're 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 friendly, but we have some fun stories from way back in the day. <laughs> one uh, one very uh, moving scene in the book, Governor, is when you're 
being treated for very serious cancer. And uh, I can't remember, I think you're maybe getting chemotherapy, but but you're lying there and, and, and uh, you said you cried out loud the first time you had done that since your mother died. Tell us about that and tell us, you know, all this talk about politics and, and Trump, but what was the impact that that experience had on you if you look back at it? Well, you know, so I had I had just been governor for five months, and I was uh, I had won this big upset and had our first legislative session, and then I dealt with the uh, the riots in Baltimore, been through our first trade admission, and then I got the diagnosis that I had you know life threatening aggressive cancer all over my body, and it, you know it I didn't it didn't upset me I wasn't hurt I wasn't scared I didn't didn't cry I wasn't upset I was really mostly concerned about telling my wife and my daughters and, and, and my dad, who was, you know, 80 at the time. It was Father's Day weekend when I got that diagnosis. And, and then, you know, I went, I had to tell the pe- 6 million people of Maryland that had just elected me. And I was really strong throughout the whole thing. And, and um, but that was one moment of vulnerability. Uh, I was uh, in the hospital bed and somebody in my staff had brought me a little sampling of, of the thousands of uh, letters and get well notes from school kids and from you know folks around the state that said they were praying for me and and I just you know I it was, I was just sharing that moment of vulnerability that I had been tough and standing up and worrying about everybody else and trying not to show any emotion but you know at one point in the middle of the night I was I was on this 24-hour day chemo and taking steroids so I couldn't sleep and I'm reading these touching cards and you know, you know started to get a little emotional because of the the kind uh, words and then really kind of broke down thinking if all these people are sending me these letters praying for me, hoping that I will survive. Maybe I really am sick, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it, all the stuff that I've been putting off, the emotions just kind of hit mm-hmm. me that one time. And that was it. Then I was tough the whole rest of the time again, you know, but it was an incredible experience. You know, I met so many uh, wonderful people who were fight, fighting much tougher battles than my own and their families and saw what they went through. And it made me a much more empathetic person. And and uh, and I'm still very involved in, in uh, cancer uh, charities and trying to raise awareness and raise money to, so we can find cures to these terrible diseases. And I, I fought through the thing like other people who have to keep doing their job and, and taking care of their families. You know, I, I went through about an 18-month uh, battle with cancer and, and tried to run the state at the same time. Well, God knows we need a little more empathy from our politicians these days. <laughs> yeah. right. uh, I want to ask uh, a little about, there's been a lot of controversy and talk about the spike in violence in our urban centers over the last few months. And the president has been sending out additional law enforcement agents in a lot of cities, but you've been hit pretty bad in Baltimore. I have not seen where the administration is sending uh, these Operation Legend agents to Baltimore. Why the spike in violence in the city? And do you need the kinds of federal agents the administration is sending to other cities being sent to uh, should be sent to Baltimore? Well, there's two different parts of the conversation. One, uh, the city of Baltimore no, I talk about this in my book. So we had in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement, we had with the death of Freddie Gray, 89 days after I was governor, we had the worst violence in 47 years break out in our largest city with a lot of violence and destruction. Just in the first few hours, about 400 buildings were burned and looted and destroyed and 127 police and firefighters were injured and the city was overwhelmed. And I, I had to send in a thousand extra police officers and 4,000 members of the National Guard to kind of protect the citizens of Baltimore, keep uh, people safe. And we were very careful 
uh, to continue to allow peaceful protests to continue to go on day and night for a, a week. But we stopped the violence almost immediately. We didn't allow anything else to be burned or anybody else to be hurt or any more bricks to be thrown through windows. And and so uh, there's some lessons to be learned there. But we had no, almost no violence in Baltimore this year. Unlike almost every city in America, we had very peaceful protests. And I was really proud of that. We had one situation of a a statue being torn down, but that was it. I think better than any state in America because we learned some lessons and I was proud of the citizens of Baltimore and the way that police, uh, you know, in a reserved way, you know, helped keep things under control. Our citizens were cooperating with the law enforcement. It was really a, a model, I think, for the nation. So there's no need to send any federal troops in to our city for any, any reason with respect to that. But we do have a violent crime problem in the city of Baltimore, which we have for many, many years, which is uh, is out of control with uh, repeat violent offenders and murders. And um, that's something that we've been working very hard to try to get city leaders and the legislature to work with us. And we have had great cooperation from the federal government. We have seven different federal agencies uh, cooperating. We have a, a, a joint strike force of 26 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies that are working on things like Project Exile for gun crimes and uh, we put state money into the U.S. Attorney's Office so they can hire more prosecutors for federal gun crimes. We've got a joint gang task force that's tracking some of the criminal activity and trying to stop the violence. But, uh, yeah, so there are things that the federal government needs to work and help in conjunction with mayors and governors on to stop violent crime. But that's different than, you know, violent, uh, you know, m- right. much of the protests Why? have been very peaceful, but there's been some you know, destruction and violence that the cities really should be taken care of. But why why the spike now? I mean, I'm looking just last night. You had uh, four shootings in Baltimore. Two 16-year-old boys were were shot. It does seem that there is a substantial uptick in violent crime in your state's biggest city. And I guess I'm asking, why do you think that is happening now? Yeah, it's not just happening now. We've had this for many, many years. We average about 350 murders a year. Uh, It's been something that we've been focused on trying to get the city leaders and the legislature to do something about. I pushed a tough crime package uh, through the legislature that 90 percent of the citizens of Baltimore supported in the last uh, legislative session. It passed the Senate and the House failed to act on it to try to do something about repeat violent offenders, about stolen guns about um you know whole, about witness intimidation and all kinds of other things that could have helped us with this problem but it's not a new it's not a new thing this has been going on since the death of freddie gray we've had 1782 people murdered in baltimore city and so you know we we talk about the importance of the black lives matter movement which is a critical discussion we need to have and about what we do about um, improvements we make with our our police departments and police community relations and but we also have to do something about this violent crime because those black lives matter also and we've got we're losing too many people in the streets of our urban areas where the opposition to your bill for tougher action on uh, violent repeat offenders what what was the what was the objection? Who who opposed it and why? The objection was it, it broke down into an argument about. So I passed a criminal justice reform which lowered the prison sentences for many crimes uh, like possession, smaller crimes. But we wanted to 
increase penalties for repeat violent offenders who continue to commit crimes with guns. And uh, the, 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 the very progressive uh, House uh, is very much opposed to incarceration in any, for any crimes or for any reason and thought it was they were calling it mass incarceration, even though we were only talking about the most violent criminals. And so uh, yeah, my, my 70 percent Democratic Senate passed it nearly unanimously, but um, the House refused to act on it. Governor, just back to COVID for a moment, because that is the uh, subject on everybody's mind. Uh, Everybody is, uh, I'm assuming that schools will be all virtual in Maryland come next month when they start or or after Labor Day. You moved schools back to after Labor Day, I recall. But when do you think that you'll be able to have actual kids going to actual schools in the state of Maryland? Well, we're going to have some of them back to uh, school uh, relatively soon. So we, we our state, we had put a plan together about, I guess it's five, six weeks ago, that our state superintendent, the State Board of Education, uh, put out a, a safe a reopening plan, took into consideration the CDC guidelines. And um, it, we, we, it, it offers a lot of flexibility to local school systems to make those decisions and to submit plans to the state. Uh, no, no later than August 14th. Many of our systems have already submitted their plans. Some of them have not yet. Most of our largest jurisdictions with the higher populations, the more suburban urban areas are all going to start with virtual learning, online learning. Their goal is to try to get kids back in the classroom because it is important when they can do so safely. But um, some of our more rural areas are going to try to get uh, kids in some type of a hybrid where they're getting them into the classroom, maybe not all the kids at one time, but some staggered thing. And that's going to start right away. So we have that flexibility. The largest percentage in those areas will probably won't be right away, but some of them are going to get some kids in the classroom relatively soon. And we're going to try to make sure that we, we try to get our kids back as quickly as possible, but in the, in the way we can keep them safe. Governor, I know we have to let you go. I just got one very quick uh, COVID question. I remember that uh, the feds had promised to set up testing sites in Maryland. Did, did that come through? Did they do that? No, we ended up setting up uh, 230 testing sites in the state, building our own state lab at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and acquiring our tests from South Korea. But uh, the federal government didn't. didn't we, we, we figured with the 400,000 federal workers we have here in this area that we could do something jointly with NIH. They have 36 federal labs here, but so far... We've had no uh, no help from them whatsoever on that. And my last quick question, you have talked about or uh, possibly running for president in 2024. When do you think you'll make up your mind about that one? Well, I think it's a long way off. Uh, we've got to get through this election. I'm in the middle of, uh, you know, still trying to run the Governor's Association. We're in the middle of a pandemic, an economic collapse. And I've got a, a job running running the state of Maryland until January of 2023. So uh, that would be a good time to think about those things. Maybe after that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All, right. All right, Governor. And and when you do, uh, we'll have you back. Uh, okay. To, I'll, I'll to hold make... my breath until January of 2023. <laughs> All right. Thank All you right. so Thanks much, lot, Governor. Governor. We now have with us the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. Governor, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you. 
So a lot to talk about here, but I want to start out with an issue that has generated a lot of controversy and gotten a lot of attention of late, and that is President Trump's plans under Operation Legend to send up to 150 federal agents to Chicago as part of an urban crime-fighting strategy. Where does that stand, and are you welcoming them? Well, let me begin by saying we're always on alert and deeply concerned that President Trump will try to do in Chicago what he has done in Portland, sending those federal protective service troops to really cause mayhem where there didn't need to be any. That was a deep concern of mine, and I expressed it loudly and often before we saw any agents arrive. Now, I spoke with the head of the Chicago FBI office before any agents arrived, I spoke with my own head of the Illinois State Police about his interactions with the federal agencies. And I was assured on both fronts from the federal government that the agents that were coming to Chicago were actually from the ATF and from the DEA and from the FBI, who had intended for many weeks before to come and work with the Chicago Police Department, as well as our Illinois State Police and other departments around the state, to help solve existing gang crime, murders, et cetera. That's obviously something that is the normal purview of the DEA, the FBI, the ATF. And so by itself, it doesn't concern me that they would be coming to work, you know, in the offices with our police departments to help solve crimes. That's something we always welcome. But, uh, you know, frankly, every day I wake up concerned that the federal government that Donald Trump will turn it into Portland. So right now, it appears that they are indeed working on cases together. I've seen that with my own Illinois State Police, and I'm glad to see that that's happening. Governor, it's it's Dan Clydman. Um, uh, There isn't a big city in the country that, uh, you know, doesn't have some partnership with federal law enforcement to work on crime cases, gangs, uh, drug intervention, as you mentioned. But Chicago is a unique case right now. Wouldn't you acknowledge, I mean, you, you have a crisis of crime in that city. You know, May 31st, this is a date that I'm sure you're very familiar with, 18 murders in 24 hours, the most violent day in Chicago's modern history. What is going on in Chicago right now? And regardless of whether you think Trump is well-motivated or not here, uh, doesn't he have a point that that things are out of control right now and you really need as much help as you can get from the feds? Yeah, but remember, the kind of help that we need is really in supporting the families that live in communities that have been left out and left behind. That's the, the real help that we need. You know, when I came into office a year and a half ago, it's what I began to do and have continued to do. I know that the mayor continues to focus on the south and west side, trying to get investment in those areas that, that again, have been disinvested from. And we need help from the federal government on that front, too. What we don't need is a massive number of troops or police. You know, what we really need is to help these families out. And that that does as much as anything to reduce violence. Now, as you've seen, you know, our economy across the nation has deteriorated as a result of COVID-19. And of course, a recessionary economy feeds into the challenge of fighting crime. You know, people who are out of work, we have people who are really hurting, and we see what that does to the, the violence on the streets everywhere in the country. 
So, Mm -hmm. but Chicago certainly needs help. There's no doubt about it, but the kind of help we need is with mental health funding, with physical health funding, frankly, we need help, uh, you know, attracting investment to support small businesses. These are all things that big cities need, but especially Chicago, again, you know, I and my administration, the mayor and her administration, both trying to do that. We wish that the federal government would step up to the plate and help us out with that. We're providing you know, these kinds of things at the state and local level, but it's the federal government that we need assistance from. But Governor, do you need more police? Because, you know, looking at the numbers, 414 murders in Chicago this year, up from 275 last year at this point in time, six over 1,600 shootings, nine children killed in just the last month. There are a lot of people say you need more cops on the streets, yet this is coming at a time that people are uh, protesting, saying defund the police. We don't need more cops on the street. What we need is support, again, in the communities. The underlying root causes of violence are the things that need to be addressed. Otherwise, this is just going to happen, you know, periodically, you know, every year, every couple of years, spikes in violence because, you know, people, people who are left out have nothing to really engage in society with. I mean, why would they if they're, if they're not being listened to? So that's something that needs to change. And again, this federal administration and the Congress, the Senate in particular, are looking to defund cities. I mean, that is what this this president is trying to do, defund cities. And right now we have an opportunity to provide local governments with badly needed funding that they've lost, revenue that they've lost from COVID-19. And yet, look what Mitch McConnell is doing. He's actually advocating that states and localities just declare bankruptcy. Well, that's not helpful for quelling violence. Governor, let me ask you about President Trump, because you have clashed very publicly with the president and been willing to take him on uh, to his face in in meetings. um, And you seem rather unintimidated by him. But not all of your fellow governors have, even Democratic governors, have been willing to do that. Maybe they're concerned about funding. Maybe there are other issues. Why do you think that is? And do you have a, a strategy in taking on the president the way you have? Are you trying to get inside his head? No. What I am trying to do, however, is You know, when people make promises and don't deliver on those promises, I lose patience with that. And I'm willing to speak out because I've learned that this White House sometimes reacts better when they hear criticism than when they're, you know, uh, fawned over. And so that's, you know, one reason. And the other is, you know, genuinely, we needed help early on here in the COVID crisis. And the White House was giving it lip service and then not delivering. They were saying things in the national media and then not doing them on the ground. And then eventually, because they had made so many promises and not delivered on any of them, they decided, you know what, we're going to just shove the entire matter onto governors themselves. Good news for us. I stopped trusting them long before they decided to shove the problem onto the governors. So we went it alone. You know, in many ways, we fought for our own testing regime in the state, and we're now one of the best in the country in terms of testing. We, you know, copied the Massachusetts contact tracing collaborative for the state of Illinois. We're building that up. 
Uh, we've been working at this for some time on our own. It's not that I don't need help from the federal government. I do. And I ask for it. And I'm grateful when I get it. But honestly, when the White House makes a promise, I you know, wait to see if they actually deliver on that promise before I give any praise. Did you discuss uh, Operation Legend with President Trump at all? I did not. He didn't call me to offer his thoughts on it. Either. Right. Oh, yeah. Governor, I was just going to ask um, on coronavirus what the situation is right now in, in Illinois. I think I've read that there you're concerned about an uptick. What do the numbers look like? And do you have a, a mask mandate in Illinois, or if not, are you considering one? That's obviously been a subject of great controversy uh, across the country. We actually have one of the earliest mask mandates. May 1st, we put a mask mandate in. I think there should be a national mask mandate. Remember, one of the challenges we have in Illinois is that we pushed down the curve. You know, we, we did well early on. We had a very, we had a spike that we were pushing down, you know, working hard at in April and early May, and we succeeded to a large extent. The states around us, Wisconsin, Iowa, Kentucky, Indiana, Missouri, all have much higher positivity rates than we do. And, you know, you don't build walls around states here. We have people who live in Illinois and work in those states uh, around us and vice versa. And so, you know, that, that's why you need a national strategy. This it shouldn't be every state for itself. But that's the way the president has set it up. And the result is that when you succeed in a state like ours, you're nevertheless, uh, you know, at the whim of the success or failure of the states around you. Mm -hmm. So we have seen an uptick recently. You know, we drove our positivity rates down under 3%. We were all the way up at 23 at the peak. And, you know, we're doing very well. And then we've seen as we open up bars and restaurants, we saw we started to see ticks up. And then all the states around us were ticking up even faster than we are. And so that's obviously feeding into the problem. We also have, you know, Donald Trump's messaging to, you know, the 30 percent of people in Illinois who support him uh, has been don't wear a mask. It's unconstitutional or, you know, it's it's infringing on your freedom. And so many of those people are not wearing masks today because they're listening to the president. And yet you and I both know, all know that the science tells us masks reduce the transmission rate by 80 percent. If we could get everybody to wear a mask, I mean, we could lick this thing. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I instead I've got to, you know, every day, day in and day out, I've got a message, wear masks, wear masks. You know, this isn't political. Uh, this has nothing to do with what party you belong to. This is about staying alive and keeping your family safe and healthy. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I wish that, that, that more was being done on the national level to fight this thing. As you know, you know, we have the perfect storm of a president who has failed as a leader, a president who doesn't believe in science, and a, a party that controls the Senate that backs him up at every turn. You mentioned you'd like to see a national mask mandate ordered by the president. Uh, and is that practical in any way? And would that be enough? There are some who say uh, we need to go further and have some kind of, given the spike, especially in the su southern states right now and in California, that we should have a national shutdown for a period of time. Look, I'm not a doctor or scientist, but I do listen to the epidemiologists and they all point to masks as the simplest and best thing that we can do. Are there other things to do? Of course, we, there's much more, but 
I would just say that, you know, whether it's look, we're in a national emergency. We either need the Congress to pass a mask mandate and the president to sign it or an executive order by the president, if that can be done legally. How would you enforce it? Well, again, you, I have the same challenge here in the state of Illinois. We, local law enforcement has to follow the lead of the state or the federal government. You know, they're the ones who ultimately enforce it. And I'm not talking about arresting people who are walking on the street not wearing a mask. That's not uh, what we're suggesting here. Uh, what we are suggesting is that if everybody understands that, you know, the speed limit is 55 or 65, you know, everybody understands that you can have it enforced upon you. So you drive 55 or 65, whatever that speed limit is. People wear a seatbelt because they know it's a requirement. And that's what people need to know about masks. It, it will help a great deal. Are there other things you can do? Of course. But, you know, the, there are different reactions you can have in different places. Some places have outbreaks as a result of youth sports. Some places have outbreaks as a result of, you know, the number of bars that exist and whether or not they're, you know, they're enforcing capacity limits and so on. Those could be done on a state level or local level, but masks should be everywhere. And unfortunately, the president of the United States doesn't seem to really believe in them. Yes, he's recently changed. I'm glad of that. But he needs to be loud and clear about it. Mm. Governor, I just want to go back to the law enforcement question for a second, because you mentioned Portland a a couple of times, and I think you were suggesting you did not want a situation in Chicago uh, like Portland with some of these heavy-handed tactics from federal uh, law enforcement that's going on in in Portland. But I guess two questions, um, one substantive and the other a little more political. Uh, The underlying question is, wouldn't you agree that, you know, while during the day, you know, there's been a lot of peaceful protesting there and grandmothers and, you know, people who are protesting and demonstrating for racial reconciliation and reforms. But at night, there are a significant number of people coming out, whether they're Antifa or not, you know, dressed in black, who are, you know, who are more violent, who are attacking the federal courthouse there, looting. Is that something that needs to be acknowledged by Democrats? The the political piece of that is, is, do you think that Joe Biden maybe should separate himself from those more radical elements if he's going to continue to do well in, you know, among suburban voters, for example? What, what, how, what do you think of that situation? Well, we need to take the temperature down and putting out secret police forces that people don't know where they came from or what they're doing there. That doesn't help at all. And the fact is that in Chicago, look, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. There was looting. But as I think many of us have discovered, uh, much of that actually ended up being organized criminals doing that, using the cover of the BLM protests. So we ended up with a lot of busts of those organized elements. So the idea that the Black Lives Matter protests were cover for some kind of left-wing conspiracy or Antifa is just a construct of the president's mind. The fact is that we don't have violent protests in Chicago now. We have peaceful protests. Uh, We have not seen that kind of looting since, you know, a month ago or more during the middle of the George Floyd protests around his murder. And so uh, these are not, it's something that the president's made up in his head that there's, you know, massive unrest around the nation. Look, there were, there were protests that were very important for people to hear around the racial inequities that exist in our society. And I think people of all stripes, political stripes and otherwise, have 
come to understand that we must address that now. That is not something that needs to be put down by police. You saw and I saw what the president did in Washington, D.C. There were peaceful protesters standing there. They weren't doing anything wrong. And all of a sudden, his troopers, you know, pushed these people, threw tear gas at them, ran them over. I mean, that's what he wants to show to the American public because he wants to make it seem like it's time for law and order because that's the only thing he can think of that might win him this election. It won't. And I think there is a recognition around the nation that this president is just making things up in order to try to win his election. Governor, I want to switch gears a little bit. Illinois has a long and storied history of corruption in its politics. I know you would hope that that was a thing of the past, but the Speaker of the Illinois House and the Chairman of the Illinois Democratic Party, Michael Madigan, was recently implicated in a pay-to-play scandal involving ComEd. A growing number of Democratic lawmakers are calling on Madigan to resign. One the other day, State Senator Heather Steen said uh, he needs to quit now over what she called, quote, a sordid picture of bribery, influence peddling and insider dealing. Now, you have not called on Madigan to resign. You said only if the allegations are proven to be true or if he is indicted or and convicted. Is that really the only standard for uh, participating in public life in Illinois? Either you're convicted or it's okay to serve? That's not the standard that I set. I did say that the speaker would need to resign if the allegations are true. And I have we have unfortunately, as you know, had other uh, corrupt politicians who have been indicted over the last year and a half. And the same standard here that, you know, when their offices get raided, when they're indicted, you know, when the facts come forward that are directed at them, that is when it is time for people in important positions to either resign their position within the legislature or resign the legislature altogether. And in either of those, you know, any circumstance of, you know, these allegations being shown to be true, or as I've said with the other legislators, you know, when there is a preponderance of this kind of activity, you know, raids of their offices, et cetera, that is when people need to be resigning. Look, there is a growing belief that the speaker has a lot to answer for. There is an awful, there are an awful lot of questions that he needs to answer. And I have called for him to answer those questions. But Thus far, we have not heard from him. Right. I mean, but look, he has been identified in a federal indictment as public official number one. The facts have been, are, are laid out in that indictment of all sorts of payments going to friends and associates of his in exchange for favorable legislation for ComEd. What more do you need to know at this point to say, yes, Michael Madigan has to go? Well, that's what I'm saying is those are serious allegations. Let's start with the fact that this massive utility has committed massive infractions, right? They've been found guilty, essentially. And in the process of that, all kinds of things are coming to light. And we need answers to those questions because there hasn't been any direct indictment. There's an implication, absolutely, about a number of people in there. We need to know much, much more. But the truth is that we have a real problem here 
there is no doubt about it, a need for ethics legislation in our state that we have not seen before. I have called for major changes in the law. For example, we need to stop this, the idea that a legislator can quit one day and become a lobbyist slash consultant the next day. You know, that that kind of revolving door has existed in Illinois. It's got to go. And legislators can no longer, while they're legislators, be lobbyists at other levels of government. Those are two examples of loopholes that exist in the state of Illinois that don't exist elsewhere that we need to close. And then we need to see exactly what it is that ComEd did that we don't have a law that covers and then make sure that we're closing those loopholes. And that, I think, is going to be revealed in the process of the conviction of ComEd and the revelations around the people who are written about in the ComEd indictment. Governor, do you have a um, do you have a candidate for Biden's vice presidential pick? Of course I do. Our junior senator, Tammy Duckworth, a war <laughs> hero, would make a terrific <laughs> vice president of the United States. I think that she not only has proven herself to be a great legislator, but also she will show up Donald Trump as someone who ran away from service at a time when the country needed him. And he's not somebody that stands up for the military. He runs away. Have you made your feelings about this known to former Vice President uh, Biden? Yes, I have. Okay. Good. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Well, we will see if he takes your advice, but we want to thank you for joining us. I thank you. Thanks to Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.